Oh, it's cousin's daughter. Okay. Yeah, it said in that um, post that Hope had included. But yeah, she was she was older. So I, I don't I don't know. I don't know what the circumstances are there, but it's tragic, no matter what they might be. Um, okay, so last week we talked about problem of biblical illiteracy. We talked about it in, in many respects, why it's important. Uh, and I just want to reiterate the meaning, the definition of illiterate. It means to be marked by a lack of uh, acquaintance or with the fundamentals of a particular field of knowledge. So if we're illiterate in the Bible, we don't know what God has said. We don't know how he's asked us to live, we're unaware, or we choose to ignore um, truth. And it represents, and we made this statement, and I want to make sure that we understand this, that, that for the believer, a lack of biblical literacy would demonstrate a lack of trust in God. That I am choosing to trust what I observe, what I interpret, what the world or society would tell me, as opposed to what God would tell me. So biblical illiteracy is a faith problem. And so we have to, and we talked about that, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that just a little bit again this morning, but uh, we have to understand that it isn't exclusively a problem with availability. It isn't that people don't have access to the Bible. It's a choice that I'm going to ignore what it says or that I'm not going to pursue it. <clears throat> So let's talk about where do we want to start? Uh, just a few to reiterate a few uh, statistics for us so that we remember that only 30% uh, of believers read the Bible on a daily basis. And so those are Protestant believers. Those would be other Christians in America, and only 30% of them, far less than half, read the Bible on a daily basis. As we look and as, as studies and statistics have been compiled and done, 90% of Christian youth have a secular worldview. They don't look at the, at the world through a biblical perspective. They look at it through the same perspective that the world does 90% of the time. The long and short is that we don't know the Bible. And even if we know it, we choose not to trust it. Christians are illiterate concerning the things of God. And I realize that's a broad brush. But nonetheless, that seems to be, at least in America, indicative of what we find. We talked about last week the purpose of the word, and I think I did kind of a bad job explaining that. But we looked at several instances, several things that the word of God does for us as believers. It sanctifies us. And what we mean by that, Jesus said in John 17, 17, to sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth, to set us apart, to consecrate us for the purposes of God. It purifies us. The word of God purifies us. It guides us. It's that lamp unto our feet and that light unto our path. It brings us to faith. 
and it gives insight into our own heart. We looked at all of those things last week, but those are some of the, the purposes that we find that the word of God says about itself. And if we're not engaging with it, and if we are uh, using it, letting it come into our hearts and change who we are, what we, how we think about things, how we perceive the world around us, we're going to be illiterate when it comes to the things of God. The biggest problem with biblical illiteracy is that it leads to corruption of the gospel. It leads to a false or a wrong understanding of the gospel. And we're surrounded by that in America today, where the gospel is uh, corrupted. People are unsure of what it means, in large part because we were willing to say, listen, this is what the Bible says about sin, and we're not willing to accept that because those are harder truths. Those are things that are unpleasant. Those are the things that confront me right in the teeth, right in our face, but I don't like it. Jesus addressed that very hard in John chapter 3. He didn't come to condemn the world. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But the world chooses condemnation when it excludes Jesus Christ from the from its perspective. So I want to talk about the gospel for just a little bit. These slides should look familiar to many of us. And I completely ripped them off with permission. But I want to talk about the gospel for just a moment. When we look at understanding the gospel, when we talk about talk about that, at least in Christian circles in America, we talk about John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And what we find is that John 3, 16 in and of itself is not the gospel. It's one facet of it, but it should raise for us some very important questions. And if we couple it with John 3, 17, Right, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, all those things, right? He did not send his son to condemn the world, that the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that should bring to mind some questions for us. Well, what am I saved from? What is the problem that I have that I need to be saved from? And why do we have that problem? Why do we need to be saved? If our gospel doesn't answer those questions, and it's not the real gospel. The gospel goes beyond Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It starts here in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's an important thing for us to realize that God created everything. If God is the creator, he gets to establish the rules. He gets to establish the rules. He gets to tell us how high we have to be to ride the ride. We also know that in the beginning, it was perfect. At the, at the end of creation, before the fall of mankind, Adam and Eve have been formed last. And God says, it is very good. It is perfect. Everything that I've made is just as it should be. And at that point, we enter into the bad news, right? We look at the things that God has said to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter two. Listen, you have one thing that you aren't supposed to do. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of good and evil in the midst of, in the middle of the garden. One thing, don't do that. And what do they do? They eat it. 
They rebel. They choose to disobey God. That rebellion, that choosing to disobey God is sin. God keeps his promise. He told them, listen, if in the day that you eat that fruit, you'll die. With the original, what it means there is that you dying, you will die. Adam and Eve didn't immediately, as soon as they sinned, fall over dead. But it initiated something, and it was a promise of God, listen, you will die. And ultimately, we find that to be the case, and that becomes an important point for us. The wages of, of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. The wages of sin is death. Matthew 5.48, God demands perfection. Remember, if he's the creator, he establishes the standard, and he says that your righteousness has to be equal to mine to be saved. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that no one is perfect. Nobody has kept that standard. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of the standard of God. That leaves us separated from God, and that leaves us without hope. Without hope. Now, this is the part of the gospel that that the world today doesn't want to talk about, the bad news. It doesn't want to engage with that. It doesn't want to tell people that you are sinful. It doesn't want to tell people that you're not good enough. This is a part of the gospel that the world rejects. But sadly, this is the answer to, the one, to one of the questions, right? What do I need to be saved from? We need to be saved from our sin. We need to not be cajoled or tricked into thinking that we are good enough or that we can somehow make ourselves good enough, that somehow we can soothe our conscience to the extent that we would be saved. If we don't know what the Bible says about this, we're going to get it wrong. The reality is that everyone who is separated from God, who is living in sin, is bound and destined for hell. That's the reality. Jesus talked about the torment of the flames as we look at the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and they both die, and the rich man goes to hell, and there he's tormented in these flames. He begs for just a drop of water. We had the discussion of everlasting fire in Matthew 25, 41. This eternal punishment for the sins that we've committed punished with everlasting destruction there's no rest day or night in revelation 14 11 revelation 20 verse 10 talks about the lake of fire and brimstone tormented day and night forever the holocaust has been described by some as hell on earth those people who endured it, those who lived in those prison camps, the, 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 those who were pursued, lost everything, lost family, it was described as hell on earth. And for any one of us, it would be, be equivalent. We, we would feel the same way. Going through those things, we would feel the same way. We would experience the loss, the grief, the hardship, all of those things. The, the difference between the Holocaust and hell is that the Holocaust ended. It stopped. 
And at some point, while we may always have some bit of grief or some something that we hold on to in regard to that hard experience, we heal from that. We move beyond it. But hell doesn't, hell doesn't let go. It is eternal. It is something that we will deal with for the rest of eternity. This is the other part of the gospel that the, the world doesn't want to talk about. The reality of hell, the predetermined destination of all the enemies of God. And that brings us to the good news. Now, this is what people do want to talk about. But listen, how good can the news be if we don't think that we need to be saved? If we don't think that we have sin, if we don't think that we're that bad, how good can it be? And Genesis chapter 3 is where we find the first utterance, the first promise by God himself to save mankind from sin. Genesis 3.15, it's the promise of victory and a savior. John 3.16, we find that promise fulfilled. We find that God sends his son. He actually sends the deliverer, the seed of the woman, to conquer death and sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, it's the core of the gospel. That Jesus was born of a virgin, that he would died for sin, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, according to the scriptures, and that he rose again three days later and was witnessed by hundreds. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it talks about repentance. Not repentance as a mechanism to merit favor with God, but something that is leading to salvation. It is the beginning of the softening of the heart, if I can phrase it that way. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. What we earn, what we deserve as a result is death. But it continues, it says the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, his son. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that it's not by works. In fact, the book of Isaiah would tell us that all of our righteousnesses, all of the good works that we would do are as filthy rags. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. God's grace is sufficient. It will cover everything. And it doesn't matter what that might be. I know that people oftentimes in the military who have gone and they've been in active duty, they have struggles with that. God couldn't forgive me for the things that I've done. Women who have had abortions, God couldn't or wouldn't forgive me for that. His grace is sufficient and greater than anything that we would ever do. God will and can save even those. God demonstrates his love. He proves his love for us. Romans 5, 8, by sending his son, Jesus Christ. But there's only one way. There aren't many ways. John 14, 6, Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The world would tell us today, and Christians in part would agree that, listen, you can be good enough that there is some other method of salvation. 
contrary to what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, Scripture confirms that there is no excuse. That God has made it very plain and revealed it to everyone. There's no excuse. Romans 10, 9, we believe that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, God has raised him from the dead and we'll be saved. This is the gospel. This is the whole gospel in its full context. God's perfect creation, the fall of mankind, the results of that sinfulness, and the redemptive work of God promised all the way back in Genesis, all the way back in the beginning, right after the fall. The greatest news for you and I as believers. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. No condemnation. In other words, no accusation that anyone would make against us would stick. And the reason is because something has happened. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that Jesus was made sin so that we could be made his righteousness. If God himself said the standard of righteousness is my righteousness, then only that exchange, our sinfulness for his righteousness through the mechanism of faith could save us. Romans 8.2 would say this, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. We understand what a law is. It's something that is non-negotiable. It is always true. Like the, like the law of gravity. Things always fall toward the center of the earth's mass. And if I drop this clicker, or if I drop my Bible, or whatever it may be, it's going to hit the ground. And in the same way, the law of the spirit of life in Christ makes us free from the law of sin and death. God promised that when you sin, you will die. He also promised to deliver, and he delivered on that promise to provide a deliverer, a redeemer, a savior. And that law, the spirit of life in Christ, makes us free. It overrules the law of sin and death. we look at the gospel in this this perspective this stacked perspective right we have the foundation of god's perfect creation and man's rebellion those are two things that are that are critically important for us to understand that god created everything perfect and that man rebelled that's the origin of sin and then we have Jesus Christ, which is God's solution, promised in Genesis 3.15, delivered upon in the birth of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And the only thing left in the whole mix is our response. Are we going to respond in faith or are we going to reject the truth? The attack comes here. The attack comes at the foundation. If God doesn't exist, if his word isn't true, then I don't have anything to worry about. This is where the world attacks. This is where those who would reject the gospel begin. 
And for you and I who are talking about biblical illiteracy and a problem within the church where we don't take the Bible serious, we don't know what the Bible says about sin and death and hell and God's promise of deliverance through Jesus Christ alone. Can we fend off this attack? Can we answer those questions? Can we deal with what the critics are going to throw our way? Ultimately, the answer is probably no, we can't. We're ill-equipped. If we're illiterate in what God's word says, we're ill-equipped to deal with those things. And so what happens? The gospel gets corrupted. We have churches everywhere that are soothing people's consciences, helping them accept that I'm just, I'm okay because I go to church. I do the right things. I pay my tithe, I, whatever it may be. But it's not confronting them with their sin. They're never shown, as we read in the book of James, the mirror of the word of God that confronts where they are and their heart. So where do we start? How do we begin to address this problem? Okay. We know that the enemy is eager to attack the, the truth, the veracity of the gospel. And so we have to be stalwart. We have to be those who would stand fast in our efforts to build upon the bedrock of Jesus. And we're going to dig deep and we're going to build upon that foundation. We're going to have to talk about the fundamentals. We're going we're gonna to reference a verse here in a little while where, where it's talked about that you should be those who are teaching, but it's needful that someone is teaching you even these basic principles. Because if we have certain things out of whack, we'll never interpret Scripture correctly. We'll never, it'll never make sense. It won't add up. We have to change the overflow of our hearts. So we talked about last week, the overflow. We're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit more this week and how we begin to put that into practice. And last, we have to study and train. We actually have to do something about the problem. We had this picture last week, right? The, the, this bathtub that's overflowing. And we use it to illustrate the, the, the idea that, that Jesus said, out of the abundance of our heart, our mouth is going to speak. And so if the abundance of our heart is what culture or society, what the world would put in there, then there's not going to be any room left for gospel principles. But if our heart is full to overflowing with the things of God's word, then all of a sudden we begin to look at the world differently. We begin to conduct ourselves in a manner that is consistent with how God has commanded us to live. So let's talk about some fundamentals. And I'm not going to take a ton of time to uh, give reference on these. I've got a sheet if you'd like it. Uh, I can email it. We distribute it in many different ways. But it talks about these fundamentals. And it gives us a biblical foundation for those fundamentals. Key basic tenets of the gospel. Number one, there is one God. 
There is one God. The Bible assumes that in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. doesn't explain where he came from, but it just explains that he is. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Next, that the Bible is the word of God. That the Bible, that all scripture is given, is breathed by God, by given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for the things that he has told us that is profitable for in 2 Timothy 3, 16. In regard to the Bible, it is inspired. It's given by God. It's inerrant. That means that it doesn't have errors or mistakes in it, and that it's infallible. It's trustworthy. Next, and, and there would be those who would perhaps disagree with this, natural historical interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3. That God spoke everything into existence, that it was perfect, that sin is a result of man's corruption. And when we just take that natural historical interpretation, we're reading, we're not talking about ages of time or periods of time or any other mechanism other than God literally speaking everything to existence out of nothing in six literal 24-hour days. We look at the, the number of foundational principles that are taught and, and established in the first few chapters of Genesis, the first few chapters of God's word, period, the sovereignty of God, the existence of God, the power of God. If we get that out of whack, we have potentially a completely different God. We have a God after our own image and not after the image that he has given us of himself. We have marriage defined. We have sexuality defined. We have all of these things that we today are looking at as problems and social, social conundrums defined in the first three chapters of Genesis. Yet the the world or the church, excuse me, the church would say, we can't stand on that. We have some other foundation, some other fundamental that we're building that understanding on. We have the existence of God, who he is. And I just want to look at a few attributes very quickly. That he is triune in nature, three in one. The Trinity. The God is sovereign, his sovereignty. He is the ruler of everything that he has created. And he may delegate that authority in certain places and instances, but he is sovereign. His holiness, his righteousness, the wisdom, the justice, the mercy, and the love of God, and many other characteristics that he has revealed of himself, we find in Scripture. If we don't know what the Bible says about God, what he has revealed to us about himself in the pages of the Bible, we're going to have some other God. We're going to have some other God that is not holy, that is somehow unrighteous, that is as fallible as man, that isn't merciful, that isn't loving in the sense that the Bible defines love by we're going to have a different foundation. We have the virgin birth. Jesus Christ being conceived by the Holy Spirit alone. The hypostatic union. What does that mean? Does anybody know? 
what the hypostatic union means. It's a big word. Fully God, fully man. Perfect. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Jesus' perfect life. Did he establish the rule of righteousness and that he kept his own standard? Jesus is physical death and resurrection. We have the foundational principles of everyone has sinned. The single way to heaven. We've talked about these. Salvation is by grace alone. Not by works. A literal heaven and hell. The second coming of Jesus Christ. These are fundamentals. They're key tenets of the Christian faith. And they should be basics for all of us. We should be able to give a very biblical and well-reasoned answer for any one of those. The issue is the church, by and large, cannot. Like any athlete or soldier, when we begin training, and let's not make a mistake, this is a training process. Becoming literate in the word of God is a training process. You begin with the fundamentals, the basics of the motions that you're going to be doing, the maneuvers that you'll be doing, all of those things. You don't send soldiers directly from home to the front lines. You send them to boot camp so they learn how to be soldiers. They know how to handle their weapons. They know how to take orders and obey them. They know how to think strategically. They know how to do the things that soldiers need to do. And when we talk about fundamentals, that's exactly what we're talking about. Training and equipping people. Yeah, I've been trying to learn how to do the forehand throw with a Frisbee. I'm terrible at it. I'm not very good. I know a few things, but I have to practice it. And it begins with the basic grip, the arm and the body motion, the hand position, all of these things coming together at the right time. I began practicing those fundamentals. I want to be able to do that. And so I'm going to do the things that it takes to be able to learn how to do that. And so whenever I run through a forehand throw, I have this little mental checklist that I go through. And it takes just a split second, but I'm checking off in my mind all those things that I know that I should be doing and quickly checking, am I doing that? When we have these fundamentals in place, the same kind of thing happens. The abundance of heart is so great in the things of the word of God that when the world comes at us with, listen, marriage can be between you and anything, there's a quick check. No, God established marriage. It's between one man and one woman, and that's it. So that cannot be marriage. Call it that if you want, but you're wrong about what that is. That's sin. When we look at all of these social issues, these social woes, and we go through this mental checklist based on these fundamental things, basic truths of the word of God, we have a checklist. We have something that all of a sudden, whatever comes out has to come in and be filtered through that. And we do like 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, we hold fast that which is good. We prove everything. We test everything against what God's word has said, and we hold on to that which is good. But if it's inconsistent with it, now we know what it's called. It's called sin. And we can begin to use that as a mechanism to address the hearts of those that are around us. Fundamentals. Are we training in fundamentals? Are we taking the time to teach them as a mechanism of interpretation?
as a hermeneutic tool to here's what God has said about himself. So therefore, any conclusion that God is somehow unmerciful or unrighteous or less than holy or less than perfectly wise is a wrong interpretation of scripture. Fundamentals, we have to have them. I have to click through several things here. Everybody who's watching at home gets to see me click through all of this and then go back through all of it because I forgot to do some stuff. You guys here don't, you don't have to stand for that. Okay. Here's the thing though. We, we need to have, we, we talked about, right, fundamentals. We need to have that there. We, we, we need to make sure that those, that's where we're starting. And then we talk about changing the overflow. And that's just the simple way to say that it's always, always going to be on our mind. We're going to think biblically about things. Okay, I thought maybe this lady was out there reading her Bible. I don't know if that's what she's reading. doesn't matter. right? She's always engaged with it, wherever she might be. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you, David said. Because he's thinking biblically. It's always on his mind. He has the abundance of heart, those fundamentals in place. So everything coming through has to be interpreted that way. Let's look at a few things. Well, actually, look, turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 17 first. I want to look at that because I think it gives us an, some insight into the heart of God in giving us his word. And I think it's applicable to the discussion that we have here that this would always be on our mind. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Here, and this is interesting to me because here is God, and he's giving the commands of, this is the law of God regarding kings in Israel. They don't have a king. They are ruled by God directly at this point. But he knows they are going to have a king. But here he gives some rules for the king. Let's read verses 18 through 20 in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And it shall be when he, the king, sits upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord as God, excuse me, his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. That his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. God says, listen, when you have a king, this is what I want them to do. I want them to take and copy from the law that the Levites have, that the priests have, and then he keeps that copy with him. And his job is to read it regularly, to be engaged with it. In other words, the word of God will always be on the king's mind, and it will be a preservative measure. He won't be lifted up. He won't become prideful. He'll say, this is it. I am in a position of delegated authority. Romans 13, there is no power except those that have been appointed by God. So here he is in that position of delegated authority, and his job is to do things in accordance with the word of God. He was to keep it with him 
If he traveled somewhere, he took it with him. He packed his Bible. It was God's way of keeping it on his mind, thus protecting Israel from tyranny. It was to always be on his mind. And for you and I as believers who are this royal priesthood, we have the same thing. We should be engaged in the same task, that it would always be on our mind, that we would constantly be interpreting the world around us by the word of God, that it would be the overflow of our heart. In 2 Corinthians, whoop, I got too many clickers going in too many ways. There we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's turn there for a moment. Second Corinthians chapter 10, <clears throat> verses 3 through 5. I think we referenced this verse last week. Uh, Might have been the week before, but here it is. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, what I, the way I think about this, the way I understand it is that we are to think like Jesus about everything. That the abundance of our heart is, is the word of God so much so that when, that when we encounter things in the world, it would prevent us from taking on any other opinion than that which Jesus himself would hold. And I realize that's a very lofty task, and it's probably not something that you and I are going to do perfectly. We are imperfect people. But that's the goal. That's the lofty pursuit. That's why we train in the fundamentals to have a basis, a foundation upon which to build our understanding of the word of God. We think like Jesus. Not only that, but we consciously bring into obedience, into compliance, every thought that we have that is inconsistent. I'll give you an example in my own life. I talk about the unsavory truths of Scripture, and it's an illustrative point. But I have to stop talking about it this way because it's wrong. Right, The unsavory truth that everybody is bound and destined for hell, even those people that I love and am concerned about. I don't like the thought. Nobody really would like the thought. But I can't say that it's bad. Because that's saying that God is unrighteous. That somehow he has made a determination that is less than holy. So for me to say that is to not think biblically. It is perfectly just. It is acceptable. It is what God should do in response to the sin that people have committed, in response to the sin that has been committed since the beginning of the world. I have to repent of that. I have to consciously bring that into restraint and into compliance with what Jesus Christ would say. He's not willing that any should perish. He's also perfectly loving and merciful, but it is not wrong. It isn't unsavory undesirable somehow truth it is just truth 
In Timothy chapter 3, Timothy chapter 3, let's turn there for a moment. Excuse me, 2 Timothy. It's helpful to know which Timothy to turn to. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to begin in verse 14. And we're going to read verses uh, through verse 15. Right after this is where we, we find that all scripture is inspired by God, that it is breathed out, literally, that it is given by him. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise into salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So here we are, we're going to take everything that the world throws at us, everything that, that we would look at from if it, within us even, and we're going to filter it through those fundamentals, biblical principle, truth. And not only that, we're going to pass this along. This is something that we're going to engage in. Here's Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, hold on to those things. Continue in those things you've been taught since you were a kid, those fundamental truths. There's an exhortation that, that assumes that he has been taught truth from a very young age. If we're going to make this always part of our mind, I think, about this generationally. My experience growing up in a Mormon home and not in a Christian home, there was a lot of unlearning and relearning of truth. And I'm hopeful that my children don't reap the same thing, that they get to start on a much more fundamental and biblical foundation than I did because they've been learning it their whole lives. We need to engage in this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, let's turn there. These two coupled together, this same thought is conveyed to the nation of Israel. Back in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a principle that it carries throughout. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. says, all these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Now remember, we're talking about changing the overflow of our heart, what is inside of us. Here is God telling the nation of Israel, everything that I have commanded you, in other words, my word shall be in your heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when you sit down in thine house, when thou walk by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Not only that, not are we talking about it all the time, but he says, thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and thou shalt be frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. You see what's happening here? And I don't want to even make this parallel, but this is the, the modern parallel, as unfortunate as it may be because things are taken out of context, is that, listen, we'll put scripture all over our house. We put these things out there to remind us the things that God has told us. We have one at our house it says, stay weird, because God has told us we are a peculiar people and that we are to remain peculiar. In other words, we are not, we're incongruous. We don't line up with the world and to hold fast to that peculiarity, that it's okay to be considered weird. So we put that up. And like I said, it's 
we phrase it, stay weird. It's easy to remember. But that's the heart behind it. There are plenty of other things that we might put up that are out of context and all those kinds of things. But the idea here is that they are surrounding themselves with the word of God. And not only are they memorizing it and learning it and knowing it, they have these constant visual reminders as they come in and out of their house, as they come in and out of the gates. Here's the law. It is right there. And I have to walk past it, whether I'm coming or going. It's a reminder to me as a husband, this is how a husband should behave and conduct themselves when I walk in. This is how I, as somebody who is engaging a lost world around me as I leave my home, engages and deals with the world. It's this constant reminder. It becomes the thing that we talk about. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. The result of all of this meditation, the result of all of this word coming in and changing the overflow of our heart is discussed in Psalm chapter 1. Turn there with me. Turn to Psalm chapter 1. David, a man after God's own heart, pins Psalm chapter, I'm going to say that, and then I'm. it's not attributed to David specifically, so I'll have to refrain myself. But nonetheless... God, by inspiration, has this written down for us. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate, does he think, does he process day and night. The abundance of this man's heart isn't what the world may throw at him or its opinions. It's fundamentally the word of God. That's what he thinks in, just like those kings back in, in the days of Israel. He surrounds himself with it. He fills himself with it. And the result is this. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. We bring forth fruit in, in its season. We stand. We become something that is profitable for the Lord. Not only should it always be on our mind, but because it's the abundance of our heart, it should always be on our lips. It should be something that we are speaking. We are speaking from the abundance of our hearts. Whatever is in should come out. Just like those kings of Israel. Who always had the word with them. Who were always engaging with it. Just like we talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we, we had that illustration that the word of God, these, fun, the, these principles of scripture, they should be the discussion at the dinner table and the discussion in the fellowship hall. It shouldn't be something that just happens at home, but it should be something that, that sharp, iron sharpening iron, that coming together and provoking unto love and good work should be founded and rooted in the abundance of our heart being filled with scripture. It should be just as valid in those contexts, at the dinner table, in the fellowship hall, as it would be in Sunday school. 
what comes out of our mouths, what comes out of your mouth. Let's look here in Luke chapter six for just a moment, just to put us in reminder of what Jesus had said. Luke chapter six. I want to look at verse 45. This should be familiar. This is exactly what we're talking about. This is Jesus teaching that principle. It says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. And an evil man out of an evil treasure of his heart brings forth that which is evil. Or of the abundance or of the overflow, as we're saying, of the heart, the mouth speaks. If I take a bucket and I fill that bucket with Kool-Aid, I don't know, Kool-Aid, and I keep filling that bucket with Kool-Aid, what will happen to that bucket? What's going to happen to the Kool-Aid? Is it going to stay in the bucket? No, it's going to spread everywhere. And everything is going to be whatever color that Kool-Aid is, which is probably purple or red. It's going to make them, it's going to go everywhere. And it's going to change and affect those things that it comes in contact with. Just like the word of God. Here we fill our hearts with the Kool-Aid of the word of God. Kool-Aid is probably a terrible illustration. We should probably use something else. But we fill it to the abundance that it overflows and it begins to have an effect on those around us. It's always on our lips. It's the thing that we are discussing and talking about. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4 for just a moment. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul writes this about our speech. He says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man. The way that we speak, the way that we conduct ourselves, how we behave and should be make the gospel desirable. It should be those biblical truths, those biblical principles. I have a good friend, and he's really, really, in my opinion, one of the best conveyors of biblical principle in any circumstance that I know. And so here are people, and, and they would just, over the course of time working at a particular place, they just started coming to him because he could accurately and biblically convey truth. Well, of course that's going in your life. This is what the Bible says. God himself said, that's what's going to happen. And that overflow began to change the way people acted and conducted themselves. It began to change how they looked at the world around them. It was seasoned with grace. And ultimately, the seasoning that we are going to have is going to be that foundational truth of Scripture. In Philippians chapter 2, Turn there with me a few pages toward the front of your Bible from Colossians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Talking about the abundance of our heart, it says, Do all things 
without murmurings and disputings. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So here we are, the abundance of our heart would dictate that it isn't by murmuring and disputing, which let's face it, those are easy things for us to fall into. James addresses the ease of sin with the tongue. And he says, if anyone can, man, if you can bridle your tongue, if you can get that thing under control, you got it licked. No pun intended. But here it is, right, that the overflow of our heart, that it, that always be in our lips. We have to realize that whether we're speaking or not speaking, whether we're, we're living life and people are simply observing that or we're actually speaking into their life and having the opportunity to do that, we are a witness, period. It doesn't matter that I didn't talk to the person at the grocery store. They're watching me. They're watching my children. They're watching how we interact how we respond to the person in front of us who has 4,000 coupons and I'm going to be in line for the next six hours while they scan every one of them. And then, oh, that one's expired. Oh, that, yeah, that one's expired. Whatever frustrating circumstance it may be, our response is speaking out of the abundance of our heart. It's really important that that becomes the abundance, that the word of God, those principles of the gospel are overflowing in our life. This isn't something that we manufacture. We participate in it, but we participate in it by doing things beforehand. We're going to talk about that as we close this morning. This is overflow. When I am at work and I complain about all the stuff that's happening, or I come home and I complain all about all the stuff that's happening at work, that reveals that there is not an overflow in my heart, that there is a little space in there that I'm holding on to, that I'm allowing myself to indulge my flesh, that I'm allowing the enemy to capitalize upon. And it corrupts the witness of the gospel. We need to fill ourselves to overflowing. Don't be ashamed. Okay, I, and I want to iterate this because I think that here we are, we're living it, we're speaking it. But sometimes we're we're trepidatious. We, we're kind of on pins and needles about whether we should or shouldn't or what if it offends, whatever it may be. And I just want to say, don't be ashamed of the gospel. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for there's a power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. That this is the truth, that this is what we stand upon, and we don't have to be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. We would expect some pushback. We would expect the world around us, whether they claim to be Christians or not, 
that, that are biblically illiterate, they don't know the word of God, we would expect that in some ways they're going to feel condemned. And I know that because Jesus talked about it in John chapter 3, right after verse 16 and 17 that we already looked at. He talks about people rejecting the gospel, rejecting truth, rejecting those things that we are going to overflow in their life because the, because the abundance of our heart is the word of God. They're going to reject that because they don't want to be exposed. You are at that moment, that light that God has purposed to shine into their lives. And that's really uncomfortable. They don't like their deeds to be exposed for what they are. They want to live in the dark. So they might respond. They may not respond favorably all the time. And in fact, I would kind of expect that more and more they wouldn't. But that doesn't change our obligation. That doesn't change our service to the Lord. And it doesn't change the fact that we should not be ashamed of the gospel. That the truth of God's word, that whatever it says and all that it says should be what we stand upon unashamedly. That to say, listen, no, marriage is only defined as one man and one woman by God himself. And to stand upon that truth. To, to, to whatever, whatever truth we may stand on, that Jesus is the singular way to heaven. That God literally spoke into existence everything, even though science has this bent and they want to say something different. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed that God spoke everything into existence. Nor should you be. I'm not ashamed that God determined what marriage is, nor should you be. I'm not ashamed that God would define the only way to heaven, nor should you be. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It should always be on our lips. Now, I talked about doing the work. This, this what we're talking about here, filling our hearts, is not, a, I put, it's not an osmotic process. I mean, it doesn't happen by osmosis, right? Osmosis is a process by which molecules of a solvent tend to pass through a semi-permeable membrane from a less concentrated solution into a more concentrated one, thus equalizing the concentrations on each side of the membrane. I'll give you an example of, of osmosis in regard to biblical literacy. I have the word of God. It is a high concentration an extremely high concentration of biblical truths. And I put it underneath my pillow. So now there is a membrane of my pillow between my Bible, high concentration of biblical truth, and my brain, which may be a low concentration of biblical truth. And what osmosis would say is that I just lay on my Bible, and as I do, there will sort of be an equalizing. Some of the biblical truth will slowly migrate its way into my brain. In other words, I do nothing, and all of a sudden I know it. Biblical literacy is not an osmotic process. It doesn't happen by osmosis. You can't sleep on your Bible. You can't sit on your Bible. You can't just pack it around in your car. You can't just take it to church on Sunday and all of a sudden know biblical truth. It doesn't work that way. It takes a little bit of effort. It takes something on our part. And here's the thing, I want to begin with this. It can't be done for you. It can't be done for you. 
I think this is important for us to realize. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Turn there with me. And as you turn there, I want to just say in Ephesians chapter 4, God says, listen, I've given pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, right? There are those who are going to teach us the word of God. That is their job. That is their God-ordained responsibility. They can't do enough. It is not their responsibility for your literacy in Scripture. They're going to give you some fundamentals. They're going to get you on the right path. They're going to help you continue to grow in that. But ultimately, it could never be enough. It'd be like trying to empty the ocean with a teaspoon. You get a little water out every now and then. But it runs right back in. And there's a whole ocean out there. Can't be done for you. There are those who are there to assist you, but it can't be done for you. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Paul is here at writing, and he see that there was this interaction with this group of people from Berea. And he says, the, these, speaking of the Bereans, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. In that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily where those things were so. So here we have this group of people from Berea. They're hearing Paul speak. Now, Paul, right, he's one of those guys that God has ordained. Listen, Paul, you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. You're going to take the gospel to the non-Jewish world. That's your job. And I'm going to specifically lead you and guide you where you need to go and all those things that we read about that in the book of Acts. But here he commends these Bereans for two things. Number one, they received truth with all readiness. When the word of God was spoken and it was accurate, they received it with all readiness. They let it change the way they thought about the world. It became the overflow of their heart. But secondly, they didn't take it for granted. They didn't just say, listen, well, the pastor said, and so therefore it must be. They compared it to scripture. They already had an abundance of heart that demanded that they would compare whatever they heard, whether it was from the pulpit or from some guy on the street, to see if it was true or not. Because I'll tell you this, as much as I don't want to, I am going to make mistakes. There are going to be times when I have interpreted something in scripture incorrectly, and I'm going to have to own up to that. I it is my responsibility and duty to correct that if it happens and when. Unfortunately, it happens. The Bereans were commended for that. For questioning, for proving everything, and then holding on to that which was good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. It can't be done for you. You are the one that has the abundance of heart that everything is getting filtered through. You are the one that has to fill that abundance. Turns me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to hammer this point for a little while because I feel like this is part of the problem. There is this assumption amongst at least American Christians that I get enough at church. That, I, that I'm somehow inoculated through the rest of the week when I'm listening to the news, when I'm hearing opinions at work, 
or with friends, whatever it may be. But all of that, the world is coming crashing down on me that what I receive on a single Sunday morning is enough to overcome all of that. It is sufficiently filled the, uh, the heart, my, the bathtub of my heart to overflowing. And when we operate with that assumption, we don't engage the word of God. That's where 70% of the world of Protestant Christians in America would say, I don't need to read my Bible because I heard it on Sunday. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. For when the time you ought to be teachers, you need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. Just pause right there for a moment. This is not a modern problem. When we're talking about biblical illiteracy, this has been a problem since the beginning because the enemy has been attacking from the beginning, the very same things. Listen, you should have understood all this stuff. The principles, those fundamentals, somebody has to teach you those again. You should be teaching other people those fundamental principles, but you need somebody to teach you. You're like those who need milk, those little baby Christians, and not those who are experienced with a mouthful of teeth who should be eating steak. And he continues on. Verse 13, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now, this isn't a, a condemnation of what we're just talking about here and being skilled in those fundamentals. This is a condemnation that they don't even know the fundamentals. Training didn't happen. Discipleship didn't happen. The abundance of their heart is not the word of God. He says, but strong meat belongs to them which are full age. They're mature. They're experienced. Even those who by reason of use, note that reason of use. How do we know good and evil? How do we discern between that which is biblical and that which is not biblical? By reason of use. Use of the word of God. Here it is. These are the principles that he's talking about. We've used these. We've filtered the world and everything around us through them. This is the meditation of our heart day and night. We bring forth fruit as a result per Psalm chapter one. By reason of use, engagement with the word of God, with the abundance of our heart being changed, we're able to discern good and evil. Those things which are biblical, those things which are not, are not biblical. He is condemning these Hebrew believers because they are biblically illiterate. It's not a new problem. They weren't doing the work. In Hebrews chapter 12, this is the exhortation that we find. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the weight that and the sin which so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, Hebrews, you who don't know the word of God, you knew better. You have the witness of scripture and all those who went before you, just like you and me, who took the word of God and walked in trust, in faith. The cloud of witnesses that is being discussed is all of those that are referenced and even those who are only inferred in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. 
Abraham looking forward to this city that is yet to come, not an earthly city, but a heavenly city. And for all of the obedience that we read about, even to the offering of his son, Isaac. He laid aside the sin, whatever would hold him up. Why? Because the word of God said. We have the witness of scripture. We have the authenticity and the example of those who bore fruit in due season because they continued in trust of what God had said. We shouldn't be like these who can't eat the meat, who can't take it. We should be those who are feasting on the word of God regularly and well. Second Timothy chapter 2. Turn there with me. Second Timothy chapter 2. Verse 15, 2 Timothy 2, 15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It doesn't happen by osmosis. This is something that we're going to engage in. We are going to study the word of God so that we might be approved, that we might be those who can approve the things that God would approve or disprove the things that God would disprove. A workman that needs not be ashamed. We don't have to be ashamed because we're standing on truth, rightly dividing the word of God. This is bad. This is good. This is what God says about this. This is how this principle of scripture applies here. In 1 Peter 3.15, we have the command, the command that we would be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks us for the hope that lies within us. And the problem and the concern that I have is that the church at large can't do that. We don't understand the hope. We don't know the word of God. We couldn't stand on truth. We can't rightly divide it. We can't speak into somebody's life, life-changing truth, because I don't know it. We want to affect the world around us. Church, we have to know the word of God. And the reason that the world influences our children so heavily is because that's what they're surrounded by all the time. The abundance of their heart has not been built. It hasn't been established. And what we hope would happen on a Sunday morning isn't enough to fill their heart to overflowing. Therefore, the abundance of their heart is 90% the same as the world. We have 10% Christians. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we are nearly done here. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I thank God, whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. So here's Paul. He's praying for Timothy. Thanks God. And this, and he, this is what he's thankful for. He says, I'm greatly desiring to see thee being mindful of thy tears that I may be filled with joy. This in verse five is what he is rejoicing for. 
when I call to remembrance the unfeigned, the uncounterfeited, the real deal faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, I am persuaded that in thee also. Paul rejoices for the sincere faith, trust that Timothy has that he had learned through his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. That infers something about Lois and Eunice. They were doing the work. Right, They were filling the abundance of their heart. They were not needful that somebody would be teaching them, but they were perfectly capable to be teaching Timothy. So all of a sudden, here comes Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, and he encounters this young Timothy. We don't ever read in Scripture exactly how that happened or where it came to be. Ultimately, that really doesn't matter. But what does matter is that everything was primed, and when he heard truth, he responded to it because of what was already put in there. Because what had been pre-programmed, if I can phrase it that way, into his heart. First Lois, then Eunice, last Timothy. And it's the witness of scripture regarding the continuation of that word. Right here is Timothy being discipled and grown in his faith. And what is he doing? He is teaching and discipling others. He is that which has the abundance of heart that overflows into the world and affects those that are around him. So that we see a bunch of purple or red Kool-Aid all over the place. Kool-Aid is terrible. All the bad connotations in religious spheres with Kool-Aid. Got to be something else. <laughs> Got to be something else. But there's an investment of time and effort on Paul's part. There's a time and investment on Lois and Eunice's part. There's a time investment on Timothy's part. We need to disciple and mentor. We need to be those who are engaging those. And when I say younger, I'm not necessarily speaking age-related. I'm speaking maturity-related. Just like Hebrews was talking about, those who are, should be useful and skilled in the word of God, they should be discipling those who are unfamiliar with and not skillful in the word of God. If we can read, we should be able to teach somebody else to read. If we're biblically literate, we should be able to teach somebody who is biblically illiterate. That's going to take some effort and some work. Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Turn there with me. Verses three and four. I'm going to begin in verse one. He says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. So we're speaking about the word of God. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. So this generational picture of what is being conveyed, the truth is being conveyed generationally, whether that's in a biological family or whether it's in a spiritual family, we are dispersing the word of God. Verse four, says, we will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. 
that we're not going to withhold any good thing as regarding to the word of God and its understanding and its foundational purpose in our life. When we don't talk about it, when it isn't the abundance of our minds, when it isn't the abundance of our lips, when it isn't overflowing because it's what's constantly going in, when we don't know the fundamentals and we have to have those who are giving us remedial Bible classes, we are withholding from those that God would put in our life to train and teach the word of God. We're setting the whole thing back because we wouldn't do the work. And I realize it's a very condemning statement, but I'm right there with you. While I have great hopes and desires that my children would have a better foundation, I know personally that there is times when I was not moving forward, but I was holding the whole thing back. We have to repent of those things. We have to turn from that. We have to move forward. One of the key things that I think that, and I want to just close with this, because we have to take all this, we have to put it into practice. We have to do something with it. And so strategically, we have to practice. Right? So when we play ultimate Frisbee, I get there a little bit early and I practice that forehand throw. I do those things ahead of time so that when I'm in the middle of a game, I feel confident enough to, listen, I have not thrown a forehand throw in a game ever. I'm just not that good at it, okay? But I'm hoping and I'm practicing to the end that I will be able to. So what does that mean? What does that look like in the church? How do we train that? How do we practice that? Well, we teach those fundamentals. We make sure that we know what the word of God says about these very basic and non-negotiable things. And with that training, there needs to be some accountability. And what I mean by that is let's put it into practice, right? We've tried to structure our Bible studies and our Sunday schools in such a way that you're accountable for the information that you just learned. And while it was hard, it was also very rewarding and it was insightful to us. Right, that here we are. We just talked about repentance. We just talked about this. We just talked about that thing. Now we're going to turn the tables. I'm going to pretend like I don't know anything about that. You tell me all about it. You defend what we just learned. Be an apologist. Be ready to give an answer. How do we do that? And we try to practice. Are we perfect at it? No. Do we always do it? No. But it's something that we do integrate into what we're doing. It's called training. We're practicing. Right? If you want to be good shot with a bow and arrow, you're not just going to pick it up on day one and hit the bullseye with every arrow. Your groupings are going to be all over the place. If you hit the target at all, it's going to take practice. You're going to have to do it. We have to take time to practice what we know. So we're going to make mock discussions. We're going to ask questions. We're going to discuss those hard questions. We're going to think strategically like an athlete that's training for an event. I read an article last week talking about muscle memory, which really has nothing to do with your muscles. It has to do with neuro, I'm going to get the word wrong, neuro mapping. It's brain mapping. Right? People who are really good at something have done it enough times that it's almost second nature. Their 
mind knows exactly what to tell their body to do. We have some of those things that God has pre-programmed into us. How many of you think about breathing? How many of you think about your heart beating? Those things happen whether you think about it or not. You can stop yourself from it, but God, even in his goodness, said, listen, I realize that there are those people out who are going to test me in this, and so I'm going to pre-program a, me a mechanism to stop that, and you're going to have to breathe. Right? It needs to be second nature. These truths that we're talking about in Scripture needs to be second nature. We also need to do it in a group. I'm more and more convinced that when we take the time to discuss these things, whether it's at the dinner table, whether it's here at Potluck, whether it's in the fellowship hall, that when we're talking about these biblical principles, they become the forefront of our mind. It's right there all the time. I was having a discussion with my wife the other day, and we were talking about uh, uh, eating healthy or something like that. We seasonally, we all we kind of all have this cyclical uh, where we, we're we really good, we're eating well, we're doing the things that you should do to, that they say you should do. And then you kind of fall off the wagon. But what we found is that when we talk about it, when we begin to converse about those kinds of things, it becomes much easier to do. Because it's right here, it's on my mind. We were just talking about it. Then I go to the refrigerator and I'm going to grab a snack. And oh, I just had a conversation about this. It's that preservative measure. When we're discussing these things, when the word of God becomes what we're talking about, when we talk about the, the things that are happening in the world around us, the current issues, the, the trends that we are witnessing in society and culture at large, when we talk about those with our kids, when we talk about those with one another in fellowship, when we talk about those from a biblical perspective, that's what's on the forefront of our mind. So now when our kids say, oh, they're over here talking about marriage, oh, that's a man and a man, that's, that can't be marriage. God says it's a man and a woman. They effectively negotiated right and wrong by reason of training use. They knew it was there because we just talked about it. We had that discussion. We built on the foundations, the fundamentals that were already there. And all of a sudden, when the world encountered them and tried to attack something, they stood because they knew the truth. When we do it in a group, whether it's our family, whether it's our church, whether it's our friends, those that we engage with. There's some accountability for the way we think and the way we act. Right? When we talk about the struggles that we have at work, and my heart and complaining and all of that or whatever, when I talk about, oh, I'm murmuring and disputing, and somebody gets to say, hey, listen, the Bible says do all things without murmuring and disputing. Oh, yeah, you're right, right? It's not this putting each other down, it's the lifting of one another up, provoking unto love and good works. And how does that work? Foundation of the word of God. We have to do the work. We have to be engaged in that process. It's not enough for us just to know the fundamentals. It's not enough for us just to, I can know how to do an exercise. I can know in my head how to throw that forehand throw with a Frisbee. Unless I put it in the practice, I can't do it. We have to do the work. Watching somebody else, watching my kids learn how to do that forehand throw is not going to make me 
able to do the forehand throw. I can't, they can't do it for me and I can't do it for them. We have to do the work. When we talked about it, what a year ago, 18 months ago, whenever it was, we talked about this biblical literacy stuff and we saw the trends and we saw how alarming it was. The response of nearly everybody at that Bible study was, listen, we want to know the word of God. So what did we do? We read it. We said, listen, let's just all commit to read the Bible in a short period of time, say six months or less. And the vast majority of the people there did. And how many of you was that a life transformative thing for? Absolutely. I think it isn't just because we read it. I think it's because we read it with the heart and the spirit that, Lord, we want to know what you have said. And in that group, there was accountability to We came back next week. How's your reading going? Oh, I'm a little off this week. Doing really good this time. Hey, have you read this passage? What did you think about that? It became a conversation piece, and it was always on our mind. It was good. We have the opportunity to stem the tide. We have the opportunity to change the way the church thinks about the word of God. And I realize that there's not many of us here, but it doesn't take many. It takes a faithful few. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the opportunity that you've put before us to engage with your word. I thank you, Lord, that you spoke it into existence, that you have given us truth that we might found our lives upon. That, Lord, we might change the abundance of our heart, that we might fill it to overflowing with the things that you have said so that we might affect the world around us and not be changed and affected by it. Lord, help us by your grace, because we can only do it by your grace, to be the people of your word. Lord, help us by your grace to do the work that is necessary to know your word. By your grace, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be those who would train others in your word, whether it's our family, whether it's one another whether it's those new disciples or even those people that we just work with as the word goes in, Lord, we know that the truth will set them free. I thank you, Lord, that this is a prayer that is consistent with what you have said. And Lord, I pray it now with confidence that you hear it. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. And as we have opportunity now to worship, sing praise and adoration for who you are, for what your son, Jesus Christ, accomplished on the cross for our sins. Oh, Lord, would it be the overflow of our gratitude? In Jesus' name, we pray and we give thanks. Amen.